Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Thanks for tuning in today. Our topic this month is the issue of false confessions. I am thrilled and honored to have as my guest, Dr. Saul Kasson, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and Professor Emeritus at Williams College in Massachusetts. My guest has written over 200 articles, several textbooks and books, and has pioneered the scientific study of false confessions for over 40 years. His new book, Duped, Why Innocent People Confess and Why We Believe Their Confessions, came out in the fall of 2022. Welcome, Professor Kasson. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's good to have you. There's a classic story that you share with readers in your preface to Duped. It took place when you were in sixth grade. Mm. It likely set you on the path you've been traveling for some time. What happened? I don't know if this is a classic story, but it was a <laughs> slightly traumatic story from, from my standpoint. Uh, I get into the sixth grade and I had a teacher who I just thought was fantastic. She had spent some time in the Peace Corps. She brought us slides from Uganda. She was worldly. And I was living in Brooklyn and I you know, wasn't worldly in that sense. And she, our first book report that she assigned, uh, we were reading biographies and I read a biography of my baseball hero, Mickey Mantle. And then I read some additional material on Mickey Mantle and I wrote a book report and submitted it and spent an awful lot of time, as my mother would attest, on that book report because I wanted to impress this teacher. And uh, in, in comes the day where she's returning the papers and I get back my paper and I have an uncomfortable look coming from her that I don't understand. And um, I get the paper back and there's this big circled F on it for a grade. And I went up to her afterward because I did not understand it. And mind you, I did some writing even as a kid in that, in that, at that age. I had already written a short story called The Inventor. Mm -hmm. um, in any event, she, she looks at me and she says, well, you, you plagiarized it. That's not, those are not your words. And I didn't, <laughs> but I, and, and I kind of gave her a look, but I didn't quite know how to defend myself. And to be honest, the main thing I was concerned about is I wanted to make sure particularly in front of all my friends that I didn't break down and cry. And so I kind of stayed silent. I looked at her. I didn't say much. Ex I think I must have said, no, I didn't. But um, I don't have a whole lot of memory for what I said, other than the fact that I was holding back tears. I got home at the end of the day. And as soon as I saw my mother, I broke down. And my mother, who knew I had worked on this project, um, confronted Mrs. Avery. Uh, the, the, the teacher, and uh, eventually she said, you find a, you find where he plagiarized it or apologized, and I got an apology. She looked, she found book jackets, she could not find a place where it could have been plagiarized, and but it was, and, and I, I can't say that it set me on track, but it sure stayed in my head that when somebody is falsely accused of something they didn't do, it's not that easy to defend yourself. Right. Right, right. 
Before I ask you to tell us about the case of Anthony Wright, which we're going to discuss, I, I wanted us to take a leap back at, in history to 1692, the Salem witch trials, an early example of false confessions. How many people were accused and how many confessed? Do you recall? The, the numbers are sort of all over the place, but roughly 150 people were accused. Roughly 54 or 55 have confessed. Uh, there were a number that refused to confess, and some of the most of those who refused to confess were executed. Right, I have um, tw twenty in my notes that you you cite. Yeah, that who, who refused? Who refused? And, and and I believe nineteen of them were executed. Wow. Now to October nineteenth, nineteen ninety one, in Philadelphia, um, Anthony Wright's case. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, 1991, Anthony Wright was 20 years old, and uh, a, 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 an elderly woman was raped and stabbed, and a bloody knife was left behind, and uh, a rape kit was, was taken. And the detectives the next day, without having an evidentiary basis for it, confronted 22-year-old Anthony Wright. They arrested him. They brought him in for questioning. He was interrogated for some number of hours. None of it was recorded, not the interrogation, not the confession he allegedly gave. But eventually, a nine-page handwritten confession was produced, written by the detectives, and signed by Wright. Yeah. Wright doesn't know what was in that statement. He said they wouldn't even show it to him. They just wanted him to sign it. He did so, according to him, under threats and promises, threats of harm, threats of punishment, the promise that if you sign this paper, you can go home. Um, Wright's attorney urged him to accept a guilty plea to spare himself the death penalty. Wright, Wright stating his innocence, refused to do so. And when Wright got to trial, it wasn't just his nine-page confession that he signed. And I say his confession, I alleged, I'm using quotes wherever I go here, um, Wright was confronted by two eyewitnesses who said they saw him in the victim's neighborhood and near her house about that time. Uh, it was supplemented by two, two informants, suspects slash informants, who said that they heard Wright talk about what he did and how he did it. They, they reported confessions from him. And bloodstained clothing that police said they recovered from his house blood stained with the victim's blood. So when the time Wright got to trial, there was a mountain of evidence. Mm. And um, he was readily convicted. And years later, when the DNA technology became sufficient where they might go back and do new DNA testing on the rape kit, the Innocence Project had gotten involved because Wright had the foresight to contact them. And uh, in 2004, he requested DNA testing. And the court that he went to to request DNA testing, now, let me just back up a moment. Pennsylvania had a DNA testing statute, like most states and today all states do. If a prisoner proclaims his innocence and requests DNA testing and DNA is available in the case file, they test it. He, 
according to that statute, he went ahead and requested DNA testing and was denied. And the judge denied testing because he confessed. The Innocence Project got involved. The American Psychological Association wrote an amicus brief. They got involved. Long story short, in 2004, he requested DNA testing, was denied. They went through the appeals process. Ultimately, the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, this case uh, occurred in the Philadelphia area. Ultimately, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned the lower court and allowed testing. So now, in 2013, almost 10 years after he made the request for DNA testing, the rape kit results come back. He's excluded. It wasn't his DNA. And then when they entered it into the national database, they got a hit. And the hit they got was to a serial offender, to someone who was a crack addict, criminal, lived in that neighborhood at the time, had at that point, 10 years later, died in prison. So, and, and had no connection to Anthony Wright. Now, one would think that that is the sad end to a tragic story, but it wasn't because, oh, one other thing. Not only uh, did the DNA exclude Wright and identify the perpetrator, but those clothes that were found in Wright's house, those were not his. Those were the victim's clothing. Now, Wright protested from the start that those weren't his clothes that were allegedly found in his house. So the, the DNA excluded him, identified the perpetrator, cleared the fact that the clothing allegedly found in his house wasn't even his. In, in, in interviews with those two eyewitnesses who said they saw him in the area, they admitted that they were coerced into lying about that. And the crack addicts who served as informants at this point had already died. There was no evidence left, all discredited. And yet his conviction was vacated in 2014. And in 2016, the DA's office retried him. They announced that despite his overturned conviction, they were retrying him on the basis of his confession. <laughs> there he went to trial on the basis of the confession and within an hour, and actually the jurors who were interviewed in this case said, it didn't even take that. We had a lunch break in that hour. <laughs> it took about five minutes, they said. They angrily and unanimously and instantly acquitted him. And, and, and called for a press conference afterwards in, in which they expressed their anger that this case was even brought forward. That Anthony Wright case says so much about Ooh. confessions, how sometimes they're taken, uh, how the fact that they're not recorded so we can't evaluate the conditions under which they were taken, and the fact that once a confession is taken, it has this funny tendency, not funny, not ha-ha, to corrupt other evidence such that by the time a false confessor gets to trial, it's not just a confession. There are witnesses, there are informants, there's allegedly physical evidence. And that's what happened in the Anthony Wright case. He is out and about now and he's okay. In fact, he was uh, present at an, uh, uh, at an event I was at a couple of weeks ago. He's doing well. Was there compensation in his case for yes, all the he years? Was compensated for I forget exactly the figure. I think it was ten million dollars, roughly ten million dollars, from the state of uh, Pennsylvania. 
and, and yeah, it doesn't bring back the years. That's the thing, you know. It doesn't not. bring back the years. And the part about this that I find most disturbing is that it took an additional, from the moment he asked for DNA testing in 2004, it took an additional 10 years for his conviction to be overturned. I'm sorry, that's not horrible. What, why, why would you hesitate mm -hmm. to retest that DNA? Is it some concept of finality? Is it the cost involved? Mm -hmm. what, what good reason is there not to test the DNA once requested? Right, exactly. Oh, it's very sad. Um, it, trying to think here. All right, so there's there's an other cases as well. Um, there was a, a, a particular case. Um, let's see where we were here. Well, we delved into Anthony Wright's case. Um, the question I have would be: Why do you think um, innocent people? confess. Specifically, talk about young people under the age of 18. You say that 90% of that age group waive their Miranda rights. You cite the statistics from the National Registry of Exonerations that from 1989 to 2012, they list 900 cases of wrongful conviction in which 42% of juveniles falsely confess higher percentage than adults. So address those questions in there about the whole reason behind this uh, false confession. There's an awful lot of reasons why innocent people confess to crimes they did not commit. Adults, starting with adults as, a, as kind of a baseline. Mm -hmm. One is uh, they, they, they are induced into what we have called compliant false confessions. They confess as a matter of compliance, as an act of compliance. They know they didn't do this, but they're under such stress, such fatigue. They've been there so long, they're alone. They're subject to threats and promises, both explicit and implied, and they want nothing more than to escape that unpleasant situation. And so they agree to confess as an act of compliance and the moment the pressure of that situation is lifted, they recant the confession. But they need to get out of that situation. And, and particularly because they're alone. They're not with family, friends, social support. No lawyers are present. Uh, you know, you mentioned 90% of, more than 90% of juveniles waive their Miranda rights. 80, 80 to 85% of adults waive hmm. their Miranda rights. You know, and that's an important point to be made because everybody is under the impression that Miranda is the great safeguard. I always have my rights to silence and to counsel, and and that and that ultimately is my 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 kill switch in, in an interrogation. It doesn't work that way, and people don't use those rights, particularly innocent people. So we have a situation where some people confess just because they've got to get out of this bad situation. And for children and adolescents, that tendency is even greater because kids more than adults are short-term decision makers. They're more likely to be impacted by what's happening now. And as far as long-term consequences that are out of view and out of mind, I'll, I'll worry about that when I get there. And so we have that tendency that is present in adults and greater in kids. And then we have a second type of false confession, which are 
We now understand them, I think, pretty well. They're called internalized false confessions. And these are cases where the, the false confessor not only agrees to confess as an act of compliance, they come to believe in their own guilt. So a person comes in who's vulnerable. They may be vulnerable because it's a loved one who was killed. And they may be vulnerable because they've been sleep deprived. They've been interrogated overnight. They can't see straight. But what then happens in all of these cases is police begin to lie about the evidence. They misrepresent the evidence. And they tell the, 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 the ultimate confessor, oh, by the way, we have your fingerprints on the murder weapon. Or your DNA was found inside the rape victim. Or we have surveillance footage that places you at that scene at that time. Today, they claim often that we have cell phone footage. We have cell phone pinging data that place you at that scene. Polygraph results, you failed a polygraph, which is infallible. There is no limit to the number of lies and the types of lies that police are permitted to tell. And so for an innocent person, who doesn't know that police are permitted to lie about evidence, when they hear those lies and they think the evidence is unimpeachable, they start to question their own memory. Is it possible, they wonder, that I blacked out? That maybe I was sleeping and I woke up and then I went back to sleep? And police help them in creating a theory that helps them bridge, here's the evidence we have with why you don't remember what happened. And so the craziest thing happens next. They start to they start to infer their own guilt. They say things like, well, I must have done it. It looks like I did it. I guess I did it. This is not the language of memory. It's the language of inference. And often that is followed by a confabulation of details. So how did you do it again? And they often they shut their eyes and they'll they'll recount how it is they did this thing we ultimately know they didn't do. They get those facts from the communications with police over the course of interrogation. I was just going to ask you, how would they know the details if they truly were innocent? So are they often fed some yes. of the pieces? Yes. And, and, and they may be fed in, in a nefarious way where the, the detective is purposefully informing them, knowing they don't really know these things, or... Mm -hmm very possible in most of these cases, I would suspect, that what's happening is detectives truly believe they've got their, their, their guy. They truly believe this is the, the offender. And so they don't hesitate to have an open conversation that communicates evidence. So by the time you're done, by the time the confused uh, suspect is done hearing about the misrepresentations of evidence, the lies, and now they're confused and they don't know what to make of all of this, they have all sorts of facts to turn to, details that have been fed to them over the course of hours of interrogation. And those details ultimately end up in their, in their false confessions. Well, I would like to, we have about five minutes left, so I'd very much like to have you tell us about the case of, speaking of teens, 17-year-old Marty Tankliff, which goes back to 19... 88. Yes. Um, Marty Tankliff's case is amazing in so many ways, uh, disturbing in so many ways. Um, in 1988, he wakes up one morning for the first day of his senior year of high school. He had just turned 17 
and there are lights on all over the house. And he, he goes to his parents' bedroom and he sees his mother sprawled on the bed, blood everywhere. She is dead. He goes and finds his father in his study, slumped in his chair, unconscious. He can hear him gurgling, so he's still alive, but also blood everywhere. He calls 911 and um, detectives arrive, emergency vehicles arrive. They take his parents to the emergency room. His mother has died, but his father is still alive. Uh, Marty is separated from his family members who then show up upon the news. And Marty is then taken to the station. And now first let's understand his mental state. He calls 911 after discovering these two horrendous crime scenes involving his parents. And he is now denied access to his other family members for support. He is taken alone to a station, brought into the station, and interrogated as a suspect by a detective who later said, I could tell he was lying to me by his demeanor. He just wasn't emotional enough. And based on that, based on the detective who said, I'm better than a polygraph, he brings Tankliff in and interrogates him. Tankliff keeps telling the same story of how he discovered the bodies. And um, the detective is not believing him. So the detective launches into a series of lies. He tells Marty that we know, we happen to know that um, you're, you, you, you had contact with your mother because we looked and she had hair in her grasp when we analyzed the hair and it was yours. And that was a lie. And then Marty, who was clean and there were two bloody crime scenes, they had to enact the theory that he must have called 911 after showering. He said, but I didn't shower. And they said, well, yes, you did. We have evidence. We did a, an analysis, a CSI analysis of your shower. And it shows that the shower was used that morning, which was a lie. And then the lead detective left the interrogation room, left Marty back with his partner and staged a phone call, came back into the room and said, Marty, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is I contacted the hospital. Your dad is alive. He's regained consciousness. The bad news is he said, you did this. Mm -hmm. And that was a lie. And that's when Marty broke down. My, my father doesn't lie. He's the person I trust most. If he said, I did this, I must have done this. Now, I'm sorry. You've got a 17-year-old traumatized, alone, for hours. You lie not once, not twice, but three times, culminating in a lie in which you tell him information that is false and the source of that information is the person he trusts most. How is that okay? How is that lawful? But it is. Long story short, Marty is convicted on the basis of that confession, spends 18 years in prison on the basis of that confession, writes letters from prison when he starts studying the concept of a false confession. I got letters from him in, from prison at that point when he was just a young man. Just to round it all out, his conviction was overturned after 18 years of prison. He, he proceeded to go back to school. He went to college. He went to law school. He passed the New York State Bar Exam. He is now a distinguished professor at Georgetown University and a criminal justice advocate <laughs> and a remarkable human being. And, you know, it has a happy ending, but it took him 20-some very, very tough years to get there. And his, his case, you know what frustrates him? Last point on this. 
not just that he was wrongfully convicted and that it was it, it was it, it it happened through a series of lies and not just that his family kept telling police who they knew had done this it was his business his dad's business partner who owed him a half a million dollars and who then disappeared changed his appearance changed his name disappeared and still never considered a suspect but marty is frustrated to this day that people who killed his parents never paid the price that um that those authorities who went after him never then went ahead after his overturned conviction and went after the perpetrators and that frustrates him as well and how often must that happen we we are out of time but you have told us that you will return for uh, another podcast so we'll pick it up uh, on the other side as they say okay. uh, thank you so much for being with us today and we will be listening next time on pursuing justice excellent